Hey, it's Andrew, and I wanted to thank you for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. Did you know that you can subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast on Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts or wherever you get your podcasts to have new episodes delivered to your feed twice a week on Wednesday and Friday? All you have to do is pick up your phone, navigate to your podcast app, and search for Door County or Door County Pulse podcast and click subscribe. If you're a longtime listener or if this is your first episode, we hope you enjoy the Door County Pulse podcast. Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast, where each week we talk with the writers and editors of the Peninsula Pulse about the stories you can find in this week's issue. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. We have kind of a a crazy week of news to go over this time. Uh, A couple quick stories in the beginning, and then we'll move on to our feature. Once again, we're going to be talking about the Granary in Sturgeon Bay. But before we get into that, there were some listening sessions about the property in Gills Rock, the the Shoreline property. Tell me about that. Yeah. So in October, the uh, town of Liberty Grove, voters elected to buy three parcels on the Gills Rock Shoreline for about $1.5 million, $1.45 million. We we talked about this on the podcast a couple months ago. How how far along were they when we had that initial discussion? Were they looking to purchase? Or That's, they uh, I think that was when they were looking to purchase. They were going to have the vote. Um, then they, they had a vote overwhelmingly approved by uh, townsfolk. Now they were just having a one-day session where they had three, three one-hour sessions just gathering people in different waves for input on what people would like to see. There's no decisions made. No, nothing off the table. It's just like, come on, tell us what you want to see there. If you right. want to see a 50-unit hotel, tell us that. If you want to see nothing at all done to it, tell us that. So well, there was some controversy surrounding the the initial decision to purchase the property. A lot of people were coming and talking about how it's this iconic imagery of the town, uh, but then other people talking about how it would be great to open that waterfront up to the public because that's always a good thing. So... Uh, now it's all about trying to to funnel those concerns and ideas into a productive space so that they can do with the property something special that's going to suit the town, correct? Yeah, and it's uh, it's different than most other towns because I don't get the sense that any of the leaders in the town, and certainly not from the public feedback I've seen, there's no one saying, hey, we need to get development to spur activity in Gills Rock. We really need to pump up the tourism trade up here. I'm sure they'd like to see maybe a little more, but it's not like any, like people live in Gills Rock for a specific reason. I mean, people come to Door County to get away. You go to Gills Rock to really get away. Right. And then the only step farther is going to the island to get away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't think anyone's looking for a, a bustling community. Like 10 years ago, there was a uh, developer by the name of Jay Blossom who has since passed away, but he was a proponent of getting condominiums built and a very large marina and a big development and that got a very negative reaction from the town at that time. So I think they they learned their lesson from that idea. Uh, but there is uh, one of the ideas thrown out there was to put a what's called a harbor of refuge. And if you are not a boater and not a marina geek, you probably don't know what that means. Um, but what that is, is like basically at most marinas, you see a big break wall on the outside. That's just like piles of big boulders mm-hmm. stacked in that just breaks down the wave action. And that creates um, a harbor of refuge for boats. If a storm were to come out of nowhere and they were stuck out on the water, they could go inside that break wall and be sheltered from the waves and, and not risk being needing to be saved. Most break walls then have a, some piers inside of that, the marina structure inside of that break wall. So that's one idea that was thrown out there. Um, in Gills Rock, it's really deep water. So creating that break wall becomes rather pricey because that just takes a lot more rocks. Right. And then what I, what Frank Forkert, who is a regional owner of Yacht Works in Sister Bay, I believe, and he's been involved in this project for a long time. He mentioned that probably the max maximum size marina you'd want to look at is 40 to 45 slips up there just based on the depth of the water. And if you had to go bigger than that, you'd have to spend so much on the break wall. But any sort of marina, the Egg Harbor Marina built um, almost 10 years ago now, I think it was opened in 2010, that cost $6.5 million. And so this one would certainly cost more than that if they decided to go the marina route. Do, do marinas end up paying for themselves over time? Uh, are, they, are they a significant enough attraction to, to any town? 
That's a really good question, and it's it's difficult to answer because marinas are paid for when people when towns build those. A lot of times they do them, they get them with um, they pay for them with grant money in part. So the town will pay a chunk in taxes, and then they will maybe get you know I think in Egg Harbor's case they might have gotten like a one point five million dollar stewardship fund that that could be wildly off, but they did get a significant grant from the state of Wisconsin. The DNR um, usually supports these kind of projects from this if there is a need for some sort of harbor of refuge. And they have repeatedly said in the past that, yes, we would support um, a harbor of refuge being built in the northern part of the county because there isn't one. There's the ferry dock and then there's not really another one until Sister Bay. So there's a gap there. So just from a boater safety perspective, there's some call for that. Um, But then there's, there's a flip side of it is that is one of the great views in the county, actually, from that Gills Rock shoreline. It's a right. very pristine, uninterrupted, um, a lot of open space when you look across at the county park that's across the bay there. And a huge break wall maybe would impede that. It wouldn't necessarily. Like, Egg Harbor has a break wall. You can still see the horizon line. You can still see across the bay. It's a beautiful marina. But there would be some people who might say, let's not, let's not impinge on this to that degree. Right. Well, and we had talked about the Egg Harbor Marina and how it kind of becomes the the center point of the town in a way the egg harbor marina specifically with the the way that you you view it from the top of the hill and how like during when the sun is setting it's just you know drenched in this really beautiful golden light that becomes a really great asset to the town um i would assume also that having a, a bigger marina would bring people up to gills rock more probably be getting people off of their boats at the end of the day and into restaurants up there it would probably be a a boon for the town in terms of tourism and people being up there. Um, yeah, you you nailed it right there. Is that's where you get your payoff? Is not necessarily like all those slips pay off the marina in that sense. Um, it not in short short order anyway. I think uh, Sister Bay with their original marina perch build that they did, I think in like 1990 when they they did a big contra- controversial build out at the time. I think they. They ended up throwing a celebration when they actually paid off the final note on it. But the, so you do get the revenue from the slips. You get the revenue from the boat launches and some other services. If you do gas and stuff at the, at the launch, um, maybe concessions, things like that. But a lot of your investment in something like that is kind of branding for your community, access to boaters, boaters spending other money in the town. Now, the thing with Gills Rock is there's not a huge business community there to spend money on. There's Shoreline Restaurant, there's a gift shop, there's a Charlie Smokehouse and a couple of other businesses and a hotel. It's not like there's, even if you attracted hundreds of boaters, it's not like there's a ton of places for them to spend that money. Right. Um, Would that be an incentive for for more industry to move into Gills Rock? It, and, and then the question beyond that is, is that something that residents of Gills Rock even want? I would, I would guess residents on the whole probably don't want that. I mean, it's hard for me to speak for everybody, but the consensus I've gotten from... I mean, I first wrote about this development in 2007, sat down with Jay Blossom and sat down with uh, Jeff Weborg at the time, who has also since passed, to discuss a rather large development up there. And my sense from a lot of conversations, probably hundreds of conversations I've had since then with residents of the area, is that I I would guess it's like 95% against that idea. You know, there's a lot of other ideas floated out there, like having an accessible kayak launch um, for people with disabilities even. Um, some people advocated for keeping it as minimalist as possible, just a place where you can have some benches, maybe a playground, open grassy area. There was a, a consensus, I would say, of not using a ton of that property for parking, instead looking for parking off the, the shoreline property, which I, I, I think is just smart development. Um, why buy waterfront? Just put it in a parking lot. Right. There were some neighbors who expressed uh, concerns about dark sky lighting, um, maintaining some of the habitat for birds that come in nest there. There is actually a sam. There's like a a spring, I guess, where they um, stock salmon in that spot too. And uh, a lot of people seem to support keeping it like a working fishery. So possibly having it available for lease for fisher- commercial fishermen. And uh, Charlie Hendrickson was a proponent for this. And Charlie actually brought up a place called Fishtown, Michigan, which I'm familiar with as well. It's in uh, Leland, Michigan. It's a small little hamlet. I visited there a couple of years ago, and I went when I went there, I thought, wow, this is like a busier version of Gills Rock. This would be perfect for, for Gills Rock. And 
what it is, is like, it's these little piers with these little fishing shacks that they've restored and then they rent them out. And so there's some gift shops, maybe little snack shops in them, but they're, they're still the old fishing buildings. And so there's a lot of fishing um, antiques and things around there. And it still looks like a fishing village. And then interspersed throughout there are these cool little, um, you know, plaques, historical markers. And some of those markers are just like stories of some of the fishermen from that community. So it's just like, so like in Ellison Bay, that might be a, a plaque that, or not a plaque, but like one of those state park info boards that they have, like out on the overlooks that might have, say, Jeff Weborg and a little history about his family and his time as a fisherman and, and Mark Weborg and Charlie Henriksen and different people who have fished in that area or, or biologists who have, are important to the area, like maybe a guy like Roy Lukes or something like that. And I thought that idea was really cool. There's some videos about Fishtown online. I thought that was a great example of a way to keep something working, but also include history. I always kind of hate when it's just the history. So, cause it's hard to maintain it. Right. And it, and it just kind of sits empty a lot of times. Right. So if you can combine the two, I, I think that's always a good yeah. idea. And that seems like a really cool middle ground for a place like Gills Rock. It's still an attractive thing to want to go do while you're up here on vacation or taking a trip. It's something that you might seek out, especially if you're big into fishing, but it still keeps the, I don't want to say quaintness because you know I have a vendetta on the word quaint. Yeah. But it, it keeps the the atmosphere of Gills Rock and it, it, it kind of heightens that historical element that's there, maintains its identity as a fishing town or a quiet part of Door County while still incentivizing people to go up there and do something cool there in a way that you would also have with a bigger marina, but you'd also lose some of that atmosphere too. Yeah. Um, but that's pretty much where that... Um Development sits right now. They're, they're, I shouldn't even call it development. Um, it's just uh, they're still in the idea gathering phase. Uh, they had those three sessions, and now they, that committee goes back to work, kind of seeing what what seemed mo- most positive from those. And then also they're going to send out a survey to all the town residents and gather that data. Um, you know, because even if you have three sessions, even if you get 50 people in each one, that's only 150 people out of a, I think, 1,300-person town. So there's not to mention all the people who own second homes there who want to contribute their ideas. So got a lot of work to do. It seems like they're really focused on pulling together the best ideas they can from what the residents want, which is a, a really a really cool way to handle something like this that can be controversial, that can have a lot of people's, uh, that can have a lot of people with a lot of skin in the game. And to be able to really open it up in a way that's like, please tell us what you want. You're going to have multiple opportunities to do so because eventually when we make our decision and we do something here, we want it to reflect what you want. Well, you don't want to end up with a situation that we have in another community in the county where maybe that wasn't done quite the same way. Sure. And I think we might be getting to that shortly. Um, why don't we move on to another piece of news? So the 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 Gills Rock stuff kind of a, a beacon of hope in in this news week. Now we have some stuff that's a little a little more upsetting. Why don't we talk about the Sister Bay Ice Rink? So that I don't have any context for this. Um, I know that it's where Broomball was done. Um, I know that you have good memories of it, uh, but it's closed right now, kind of out of nowhere, right? Yeah, we have kind of the coldest week of the year so far. Great ice making conditions, great skating conditions, and the Sister Bay Ice Rink is closed. It's disappointing to me. I personally have skin in the game just because I have played broomball for much of the last 20 years whenever I've lived here. Broomball, in some ways, is a, a stupid little game, but it's a lot of fun. Um, bring, it has historically always drawn a lot of people out there, so I'm just disappointed that it's shut down. Um, what happened was the, the the manager of the rink got injured, and I I haven't spoken to him, but uh, what I've been told is that he also got kind of frustrated with trying to flood the rink and um, get ice made there. And so he resigned on Monday. And the village really doesn't have a backup plan for that. Part of that is because it's just hard to find employees. To It's a seasonal job. They've had trouble finding people to just work in the warming house and help sharpen skates and stuff. So they didn't have anyone else to step into that position. And it's now their policy to not let volunteers do the ice rink flooding and, and man the, the hut, which is how it operated for the first five to seven years when really the ice rink was at its best. That was about, probably say, 95 through 2002-ish. Was the ice rink a public project? It's not a privately owned business? It's not privately owned. It is public. Uh, it started entirely on the backs of volunteers in the mid-90s. Some guys just really wanted to get an ice rink going. 
um, hockey enthusiasts, and then they started playing broomball there. That quickly grew into a really popular thing. You'd have, they just had a gravel uh, base for the first few years, and it was wooden boards um, kind of nestled into this like idyllic spot in the trees in Sister Bay. And so it was really well sheltered. But then Sister Bay decided they want to put the fire station there. And so they built a new fire station that displaced the ice rink. At the time, it was really controversial because it was almost entirely built by volunteers, including a warming house. They had plans to expand the warming house and basically was taking all that work and just like ditching it. So then the village, to make good on that, had to build a much more expensive version um, from what they had gotten for free out in the sports complex. And that's great. They invested a lot of money. It kind of lacked all the character. It was put in the middle of a field. There's no wind block, really. They ended up having to plant trees, which are only now kind of getting to the size that start to block the wind on that rink, um, which is great. And I applaud their investment. But they've never been able to seem seemingly to to keep the rink consistently open and managed um, year in and year out. Some years are really good, and then things kind of dwindle. So, yeah, now they have something that's on the order of a 600 to million dollar investment that's sitting dark um, right. until they find a new manager. Well, and the let's hit the broomball thing a little bit too. There, there's a broomball league in Door County, right? And mm-hmm. they primarily do it there. Yeah, correct? entirely there, yeah. So when, when does the league start up? Uh, it started last week. We had our first games and then... And now nothing. Now nothing. So yeah. what's the broomball league's plan? Uh, we've got a lot of guys who have volunteered to do flooding. I've been getting flooded with text, but the village has said that they really don't want to do anything until they have a manager. So, and so even though we got people willing to flood, right? And I, I get it. There are liability concerns. I don't want to minimize that, but I do know that other communities seem to kind of kind of things done. Right. Well, and this is something that you're particularly passionate about. I didn't actually realize that you were a member of the Broomball League currently. Yeah. So I'm not was- good. I, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about diving around on the ice. For some reason, I like to do that. Um, I once lost my teeth playing broomball so i am like lifelong committed to it to earn to make that more valuable i've probably spent about eight to ten thousand dollars on those teeth i got knocked out and so i have given so much of myself right broomball (laughs) is your dark passenger that follows you throughout your life (laughs) yes um so yeah this must be particularly frustrating that it's it seems like it's closed because of a of politics or like a political reason. Well, it's not, I wouldn't say politics. They simply just are trying to hire people and they, they can't get the people. So I don't want to come off as negative with the village because they've done a lot of really great things, but right. um, I more meant that like there, there are are solutions that are, are maybe there, uh, that just, that can't be the solution for reasons one way or the other. Yes. Liability, liability fears. Right. And that feels frustrating, even though you totally understand it. Yes. That's a good way to put it. I just wish sometimes people were like, you know what? This doesn't necessarily fit by the book and all this stuff, but can we get a group together right now and go and flood it? Right. You know, it's not that. Or as soon as that guy resigns, contact everyone and say, hey, we're not going to have broomball unless we get some help. Ask for help. You know, people tend to help a ton in this community, Um, especially, you know, when you're talking about an ice rink that's open for two months. People usually respond pretty quickly. Right. Well, and and maybe there's maybe there's some good in talking about it, kind of the way that we are right now. Um, maybe there's somebody listening to this podcast that has a good solution, and they will, you know, maybe run that by you, Miles. Maybe you can help <laughs> facilitate this. But yeah, it's just it's something that I saw in the headlines this week, and was like, oh man, I know, I know that Broomball literally just started and now and is now kind of just sitting and waiting and trying to figure this thing out. And I hate when you let things dwindle because when they dwindle, they die up here. And then it's really hard to get them started again. You know, when, when towns, when leagues get let to kind of rot and, and they, they, you don't reinvest in them, it's just really hard to get going again. And I'd hate to see that happen. Broomball is kind of cool. It's a, a great story of this thing that became like a tradition in, in Sister Bay over, and it's been going on for 20 some years. And to just be like, uh, guy can't come, work to, to come to work today, so we're not having it. It's frustrating. But anyway, that segues right into our next topic. You're right. Uh, another thing that that's potentially frustrating, but but definitely one of those like bummer stories that have come out. So Fish Creek has canceled its fireworks and celebrate or Fourth of July celebration. Yeah, um, and I say Fourth of July summer celebration. They call it Summerfest. Essentially, it is an Independence Day celebration. It usually happens the Saturday following the Fourth of July, the first Saturday afterward. 
they do uh, fireworks and live music and food and beer and drinks down in uh, Clark Park and Fish Creek and have traditionally had like one of the best fireworks displays in the county, if, if not the best. Um, draws a ton of people down there, but the Fish Creek Civic Association this week, um, or I think actually first week of January, announced, sent a letter to its members saying that they were discontinuing that. Um, one, because contributions have tailed off a little bit and don't match expenses. Expenses have grown. The and But mainly, I think the primary reason, and they're, they're a little bit concerned about the um, construction going on next year and how that right. might impact things. But the main concern seemed to be that, um, you know, it doesn't, a lot of businesses don't see a direct benefit from having the fireworks that day. So why are they putting as much effort and wrangling up volunteers and fundraising for this and spending additional funds on it if it's not having a business impact? Sure. So one of the things that I know about 4th of July up here is that there's a bunch of different fireworks displays and celebrations that happen all through the week from the 4th of July into the weekend. So 4th of July up here is kind of like a big multi-day event where there's fireworks seemingly every night and there's always a party going on. I traditionally will go to the Egg Harbor Marina for the fireworks display there because I live in Egg Harbor. Uh, But Matt Markon, who hosts the Weekend Primer with me, was particularly upset about this development because he could see the fireworks from his house. (laughs) And so now he actually has to- Very selfish reasons. Right, now he has to go somewhere to go see the fireworks. So, okay, so this is, it's fiscally, it's not uh, a, a big boon for the town, so it doesn't make sense to do it. Are there, are there reasons that, that you can think of why it, it is a good thing or it is something that's beneficial? Well, it's always tough. And I talked to Shane Sullivan of um, Julie's Park Cafe, talked to a couple other business owners. I talked to the two former co-chairs, Tom Young and Brian Hackbarth. You take an event like this and you may not see the direct benefit that day, Shane Sullivan argued, but... These are people who maybe don't go to Fish Creek all the time. They come for this and then they see these other things and, and now they've got a positive image of Fish Creek. Maybe they see businesses they like and they come back and spend money on a different day. So you don't see it then, but you see it another day. There's also this thing that happens all the time up here. I've seen it a lot in 40 years is an event starts, gets busy, gets popular, and then businesses kind of get complacent and they say, well, we, we're busy anyway. Why do we need to do this? And then it's forgetting part of the reason you're busy anyway is because of this thing going on. Right. You know, like it be, you know, people might say that about Fall Fest or Pumpkin Patch or, you know, with the half marathon weekend, we've, we've heard that now of people saying, well, why do we need to advertise or sponsor that? Cause we're really busy that weekend. It's like, well, that's because the half marathon has been going on for 12 years on an otherwise dead May weekend. Right. I wonder if this is one of those things that you can only really appreciate the impact in hindsight. So is this something that they're not seeing a, a huge impact of doing it, but then next year we're going to realize, oh, there was a dip in business that weekend or <laughs> That's Fish Creek performed, uh, le- didn't perform as well as some of the other towns It's over quite that possible. Weekend. And I, I personally, I think that that particular festival, I'm not always a fan of like, all right, we do another festival, do another festival. But historically, go back 50, 75, 100 years in Door County, tourism drops dramatically after the 4th of July. You have the big build-up to the 4th of July weekend. The following weekend, and even in some cases, the following like 7 to 10 days, there's a dip. So you have beautiful weather. You have a beautiful environment up here. Everything's open. But then you actually have like the vacancy rates go up in all the hotels. It's You can look at it across the board. So here's something in that gap to provide like a an activity because otherwise you have this drop. The other thing people have told me is Fish Creek doesn't really have any in-season events. And so they have winter festival, they have some shoulder season stuff, but nothing in the summer, which again, you can make the argument for that because you can say, well, yeah, we're busy anyway. Why do we do it? What the civic association is grappling with is, are we just for business? Are we just, it has to show a return or is it also a civic benefit? Is it also for the eight-year-old kids in town, whatever it brings into business, is it to entertain the 1,100 people who live here year-round so they can have their own community celebration. There are a lot of communities around the country who have fireworks who don't make a dime off them. Right. But their citizens enjoy them. And so they they do these events or they have town festivals or town um, brat fries and things like that that have nothing to do with tourism. We judge everything by like that tourism return. And sometimes we forget that you should just do things for fun. 
Now it's hard to do that in the summer when everyone's got to try and run their businesses. I totally get that. Um, I think any business owner would get that, but um, I think there's there's ways to work around it. Right. Well, and that, that's a good a good point to bring up and a good side of it to look at. I mean, going back to the tourism side of it, if you just look at it that way, the reason that I go to Egg Harbor's fireworks is because I live in Egg Harbor. If Egg Harbor canceled their fireworks this year, I can tell you where I'm not going to see fireworks in Egg Harbor because yeah. they don't have them. So I'm going to go somewhere else. So regardless, you're going to see people who are staying in Fish Creek over the 4th of July weekend who are going to leave Fish Creek to go enjoy other places' fireworks. I know for a fact there are at least one, possibly multiple towns that would look to try and take up the fireworks on that Saturday. You think so? Yep. Yeah, and it, it, it's one of those things where it's like, if, I, if I'm up here with my kids and I'm, I'm in a hotel or at a resort in Fish Creek and then I want to go see fireworks, I'm going to go see fireworks in a different town. I'll probably also get dinner in that town. Or I might take my kids there earlier, go to the beach, go shopping in that town, knowing that we're going to spend the whole day there and then take in the fireworks afterwards. I can't do that in Fish Creek because they don't have them anymore. You know what I mean? So it's one of those things where, yes, I go to Egg Harbor because it's convenient to me. I would assume that there's a lot of people in Fish Creek who go to Fish Creek because it's convenient to them while they're on their trip. Yeah, it is a great, for anyone who's been out there, it's actually a, a great atmosphere. It's really fun in Clark Park. I used to work the brat fry for the Gibraltar Brewster Club. and you know, the Booster Club is a big fundraiser for them. It's a big fundraiser for other nonprofits. So there's that component to it. If you take Egg Harbor, they were, I hope they would never do this, but like you get rid of Pumpkin Patch thinking, oh, we're just going to be fine. Well, somebody else is going to pick up. And it, like if, if Egg Harbor dropped Pumpkin Patch, guarantee you another community would be like, we will do a fall festival on that weekend. Right. <laughs> like, and just drain everything from there. So I think that's what would probably happen with this one. One of the other things in talking to Tom Young and Brian Hackbarth, the, the co-chairs of the event from last year, um, Brian Hackbarth actually founded the event. They do all the fundraising. Um, at least my understanding is they do all, if not most of the fundraising, um, bring in $30,000 a year for the fireworks. They said they were not consulted throughout this decision-making process. And the leaders of the Fish Creek Civic Association confirmed that, that they did not inform them as they were going through this. and they what they told me was had the civic association said hey we need to cut the budget for this they could have just said well we're, we'll just okay we can do that we can um not spend as much on the fireworks we can um maybe we don't do some of the stuff in the park we don't play for the band and that sort of thing and we'll bring the budget down it it seems like it maybe wasn't vetted as completely as possible and i don't think i think basically when you're on the board though i, I sympathize for them you know there any of these civic association boards you have a lot of different decisions to make and budgets to manage and trying to finagle like how many volunteers can we get and how how thin can I individually be stretched because the business owners end up doing most of this work. So it's like having a second business. Um, so they're just doing it in that vacuum and going, all right, what can we handle? Because you can't always count on everyone else pitching in to do this. But in this case, they have had like, it seems like they had a committee that was pretty dedicated to this event. So it seems there there is a chance that they reconsider. They haven't announced that yet, but there are, there is a group trying to, Brian Hackbar said he's still trying to save the fireworks and work with some people to come up with a plan, but it remains to be seen if the Fish Creek Civic Association is interested in doing that. So I think we all just go down to the fireworks shop in Sturgeon Bay, grab some fireworks and go to Clark Park on that day anyway, and we'll have our own party. <laughs> you might face some fines. <laughs> That's probably true, but they can't arrest all of us. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't we take a break here, and then when we come back, we'll jump into our feature. Maybe not the last time that we talk about the Granary, but certainly certainly one more kind of major event for the, the whole history of this process just happened over this week, and, and we're going to get into that when we come back. They call themselves the Stradivarius Builders of Sturgeon Bay because the guys at Palmer Johnson were artists in wood and metalwork, anything you imagine. They did it so beautifully well. The first fishermen came down the lake from Pankin Island, worked their way along the north shore of Lake Michigan, and they came because of the whitefish. The whitefish were abundant. In 1945, 2,000 German prisoners of war came to Door County and picked cherries for just one harvest season. Peninsula Filmworks is dedicated to telling the stories of Door County, past, present, and future. 
To learn more about the history of shipbuilding in Sturgeon Bay, to see how the Cherry became a Door County icon, or to watch the peninsula's last remaining fishermen brave the waters to haul in thousands of pounds of whitefish daily, and the many other incredible stories produced with the Door County Visitor Bureau, visit doorcounty.com slash ourdoorcounty. Okay, we are back, and uh, we have the next installment in our favorite radio drama that we put on every every couple weeks here at the Pulse Podcast, and this is the the next leg of the story for the Granary in Sturgeon Bay. Yeah, we actually um, download our new podcast, The Granary. Yeah, the Door County Granary Podcast, where each week we're going to talk to uh, the movers and shakers surrounding the granary issue. If you want a... We wouldn't be talking to them. It would be a lot of shouting. It would be well, very and, emotional. And we'll get into that. We'll get into that. But if you want if you want a better uh, background or context for this story, I recommend listening to the Fate of the Granary podcast episode that we did. We also did a podcast about the uh, West Waterfront and the High Watermark. Both of those kind of will give you more context for this. But all that being said, the Granary is coming back to its original location. Yes. Uh, on Tuesday night's meeting at the Sturgeon Bay City Hall, you had uh, kind of set the scene here as... There was a planned commission meeting right before that usually bleeds into the council meeting. There was a pretty full house for the planned commission meeting, probably three quarters full. And by the time that the the main meeting started, there was it was kind of gotten to the point of standing room only here because everyone knew that there were two items on the ballot or on the agenda that were very um, controversial. One was proposal to by the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society to donate the granary, they, they now own the granary building, to donate it back to the city of Sturgeon Bay, along with the $1.25 million donation facilitated by the Community Foundation, and then to move it back, if they would move it back to its original location on the West Waterfront. There was also an agenda item to propose a referendum to the city to put on the April ballot, so for citizens to decide what they wanted to see happen to the granary. So that had a very packed and very tense house. One of the ways that the, it's important to know how the, the city works with public comment. There are some communities in the county that meetings are very much more open. You know, if, if somebody in the, in the audience has expertise on a topic, they might get called on. They might just start talking during the middle of a board meeting. Um, some people would frown on that. Um, other people think that's good, small town, let's gather the input kind of government. It can become unwieldy if you do that. Sturgeon Bay certainly does not have that. Um, they will almost never, if the council is discussing a topic, they will almost never bring someone from the audience in to share information. Like they could be, they could be discussing whether or not the building was on fire. And if a fireman were in there, they wouldn't call on the fireman. They would just discuss it amongst council members. And that's kind of how they discuss everything, whether it be a marijuana referendum, whether it be beekeeping, and certainly whether it be the ordinary high watermark or the historical society. They will talk around. There might be a group in the audience and the executive director of that group might be sitting in a chair right in front of them. And the council will talk around a topic wondering what the answer to a question is about that organization, but never allow that person to, the mayor never allows that person to actually like just answer the question. So the only way you get citizen input at their meetings is generally through their public comment session. They may or even got rid of that for a while last year. That's been brought back, but it's limited to 10 people. And you get to talk for three minutes each. So if you don't limit it, you can end up with long, unwieldy meetings. Right. There are a number of people who go to like every council meeting and speak every time if they can. I can see how it can get a little arduous, burdensome, annoying. Some of these people just come up there and scold the council every week. And that, I can see why you don't, like, that's not always valuable. Well, and, and let's, let's reiterate that real quick. There, there's, there's 10 slots for community input on this. And this became a controversial thing around this meeting, specifically because people were, there was some accusations about those 10 slots being filled in a way that would uh, be biased. Yeah, so the first three people to speak I wouldn't say, like Jim Schusler the, from the Door County Economic Development Corporation, he spoke, I guess some people would read that as anti-granary. He was basically just trying to say, like, let's not let ourselves def be defined by the granary. Let's kind of think more broadly, is how he told it to me. But 
Kelly Catarazzoli on the council interpreted the first three speakers as being very anti-grainery. And usually the council just sits and listens. And she got fed up and kind of turned to the mayor and said, very exasperated, um, I see what you're doing here. This is a joke kind of thing. And that's not a verbatim quote, but that's basically summing it up. Right. Basically saying that the the cards had been stacked against the granary. Yeah. He was, what she was saying is she was accusing the mayor of first. She said the, she knew basically you can fill out slips to speak on a first come first serve basis. Right. The slips are outside the town hall. You turn them into the clerk and that is whoever turns them in first. That's who gets to speak in that order. So she was accusing the mayor of shuffling the deck. Mayor said no. And then basically it turned out that people had come earlier in the day because she looked out and she said, I know for a fact that some of these people speaking just got here two minutes ago. Kelly, previous to this, was Kelly Catarazzoli, was um, chairing the plan commission meeting. So she knew who was in the room and who wasn't. Well, once these people started speaking, she thought this was wrong. It turns out all those people had come much earlier in the day and filled out their slips at like 3, 4 p.m. Right. Not something that almost ever happens at these meetings. So then she was kind of insinuating that the mayor had encouraged these people to come earlier in the day to fill out these slips. Mayor denied it, got very upset, understandably so. And then later, Cap Wolf, Thomas Cap Wolf, a controversial figure in Surgeon Bay, an anti-grainery person, he admitted that he had made some calls and encouraged people to come and fill out their slips during the day to make sure they were heard. Right. It's... You know, Ms. Catarazzoli called that kind of like trickery, but it's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's kind of smart organizing, I guess. But it definitely set a tone in the meeting from the get-go with a lot of guffaws, a lot of like moaning, some shouting, some speaking out of turn in the audience. The mayor at one point threatened to just close the procedure and kick everybody out if they couldn't control themselves. And he was actually... In this case, he wasn't just yelling at the pro-granary folks, which is kind of usually how it goes. He was just talking a point of order, and he, he was correct. I mean, people were just kind of was getting a little vocal. So then things calmed down from the audience perspective after that. Well, and maybe, maybe let's back up a little bit and talk about why tensions are so high when it comes to the granary, uh, specifically in the situation that it's in now. So if we back up and we just do a really quick bullet point timeline the granary was in danger of being uh, taken down and then uh, groups got together to move it to a temporary spot while they tried to figure out what's going on with it. All of this is wrapped up in the West Waterfront Committee that was trying to figure out what to do with that portion of land that the granary was on. Then after the granary is moved, uh, from my understanding, that committee is dissolved and the whole Sturgeon Bay Council kind of gets shaken up a little bit there's a lot more pro-granary people that come into the council, and it kind of opens up this idea of like, oh, now we can move it back. The problem then being that the new council creates this ad hoc committee to try to figure out what's going on with the West Waterfront. The granary wants to come back, and the council says, wait, let the ad hoc committee figure things out, and then we'll see how we can move you guys into their plan. But we don't want to step on their feet the same way that they were trying to step on your feet when this whole thing started. So that's where this contention comes up. So the reason... You, you just summed that up perfectly. Okay. So the reason why this is such a, a, a controversial thing right now is because the, the granary folks are running out of time. They have an eviction notice for their property. They have to get the granary off of the property. The donor of the $1.25 million was threatening to back out of that donation if they didn't come up with a plan for it. So they're desperately trying to get it into a forever home and the council is saying, we want to work with you, but we need more time to get the ad hoc committee to finalize their stuff so that we can do this all on the up and up. So that's kind of the contention here. That's why passions are so high, because we're trying to work together on this, but we're running out of time desperately. That's uh, exactly where it stands. And just to, like what I've described in these meetings and the, the way it operates, I mean, there are definitely communities that have contentious meetings. They are there are definitely places that communities that flat out screw things up in their processes, but there's nothing like what's been going on in Sturgeon Bay for the last five years. Nothing in all the meetings that I've been to in all these different communities. It's not normal. Well, and the other thing that I didn't mention is that on top of all of this um, political drama and timeline crunches and stuff like that, there are also incredibly passionate figureheads on either side of this thing 
that are very vocal and very aggressive towards each other. So there's there's a lot of emotions at play here too that's compounding this political drama. Yeah, when people were speaking at the meeting, um, Laurel Hauser started off the debate over the the grain removing just by laying out some bullet points. You could tell she was keeping her emotions in check, but because she, she's kind of a a middle ground between the two sides that I think like people on both sides respect and talk to. And you could, you could tell it was a tough decision for her. She's definitely very pro-grainery. She's also very pro-transparency. And what she tried to lay out, lay out was, okay, this was, in a, the only reason this isn't farther along now is because of the, the refusal of the previous council to even hear the granary side and consider the donation and consider any of those factors. And so she pointed out that in October of 2017, this donation came forward. We never discussed whether to accept it. Also in October of 2017, the Historic Preservation Committee of this city recommended that we do everything we can in a five to one vote recommended. We do everything we can to keep the grain area where it is and construct it where it was on the west side in its original home. And the city council, the old council, never took that recommendation up, never discussed it, just kind of let it sit. That's not normal practice. So she's saying, like, if we did apparated like normal, we would have taken that up and debated this a year ago. Um, so she's saying this went through the proper channels. This is what it was supposed to be. And if if we hadn't had to move the granary to save it from the wrecking ball, it would still be sitting there and be wrapped into any waterfront plan anyway. So there is a lot of merit to that. I'm sitting there in the meeting thinking, oh, man, don't do this. If I were on the waterfront committee, I would feel undercut. I would feel like you're... Let us invite you back. Don't force it on us. Cause I, right. So there's that dynamic. But they do have an eviction notice, and they want to move forward with, from the Sturgeon Historical Society standpoint, they have an eviction notice. They want to get it to a final home. They want to get donations flowing. There are other people willing to donate if this thing gets solidified. And they want to get, they want to do their work on it to prove that it works. Laurel Hauser and Barbara Allman both made some good points in the sense of, you know, the Door Community Auditorium was a tougher fight than this. Um, people hated the idea of the auditorium. There were people who were vehemently against it, distrusted, said there was, they didn't believe that people were donating to it, um, that the money was really there, and that it was just going to cost taxpayers a ton of money, which it never did. People were, myself included, were against the Crest Pavilion. That was stupid. It's a beautiful f- facility. People fought vehemently over the saving of the steel bridge in, in Sturgeon Bay, and now it's, as Barbara Allman said, it's on our trucks. It's on our on our stationery, right, it's, it's on our welcome a, it's sign. It's the logo for yeah. Sturgeon Bay. So she was just saying, like, there's just because there's a fight and disagreement doesn't mean like we can't plow forward. Well, it doesn't mean that it's not worth it. It's the other thing. Yeah. I mean, we might find that this this whole thing, 10, 15 years down the road, that this was totally worth it. We could. Or, you know, we could find out that this wasn't worth it and that there was way more drama for this thing than it actually deserved. Well, whether it's worth it or not, there's definitely been way more drama. <laughs> I will say that now. I don't care what 50 years from now says. There's definitely way more drama than we need on this. Barbara Ullman had a, a great quote, too, in the meeting where she said, I, I did not think she would vote to move it. Um, in the past, she had, I think she had voted against moving it back until the committee had done its work. And she's generally a very fiscally conservative member of the council. She is like the only one who consistently questions um, the financials and asks for evidence of where they're spending their money to the great annoyance, I believe, of um, the mayor and some others on the council. But I think it's great because that's, that's you should be, questions are good <laughs> um, in a council. You, you can't just start rubber stamping everything. But she also, she said, you know, we are we're bemoaning and getting ticked off because we don't get a small grant for this project or that project or Little Lake or or money for the parks. And meanwhile, we won't even consider a $1.25 million donation. She said, I don't care if you're for it against it. I don't care if I hate the idea or I love the idea. If you're sitting there with $1.2 million in your pocket, I'm going to listen to you. Right. And that really is, this all could have been moving forward a year and a half ago if the city would have just taken that tack. Because, you know, what I said earlier about them, like not, not asking for, not asking the people who know the answers for their opinion and instead just trying to allege things back and forth. David Ward pointed to a contingency in the Community Foundation's letter. Um, the donation basically says, 
in a nutshell, he calls it a contingency. And he says, this isn't a clear donation. How do we know that they're going to come through with this? Because they have these contingencies on here. The contingency is essentially, you guys just have to get along and come to an agreement on what to do with it. That to him, he's phrasing that as like a non-starter. And it's weird because David Ward is a really smart guy. He's got some great expertise to bring to the board. In many cases, very level-headed. Uh, his committee reports are, are very thorough and helpful. But then on this issue, it, it, it just seems like trying to find negatives where there aren't any. Like you, there are some negatives, there are questions, but he's kind of looking in spots that I don't think, it's, it's hard to question the integrity of the Community Foundation knowing what they've done for other projects in this county and what they've done to facilitate things like the, the Horseshoe Bay Farms project and so many other community funds working with a lot of different schools, getting major donors, taking a fund from $5 million to $25 million. So it's, it's kind of a weird tack to me to see him questioning that when the offices of the community foundation are three blocks away, you could make that call and just have the answer to that question. Cause he's brought it up several times over the last year. And it's, to me, it's just kind of a wonder why you would do that over and over again. So the, the two things that kind of went down at the, at the committee meeting were that the, the, the question of whether or not it would be put to referendum in April, that failed. So there is going to be no community referendum on the granary. Yeah, the mayor brought that forward. And then at the end, he made a statement again saying, "I we should let people vote on this. This is a, there are a lot of people against this, a lot of people for it. Let's let the people decide. Which is, and he was bemoaning, or he was attacking the pro-granary folks for not wanting to go that route. When this is the same guy who, when given a petition, I, I believe three other times, from groups seeking to get in a, refer- a referendum on the ballot. He said, no, that's not how we operate. So and there was a referendum on the, what to do with the West Waterfront, on the ordinary high watermark, and I believe on the hotel development itself. But he said no. And I think probably rightfully said no. You could make the case that like, you, the city should just, you elect the council and they gather your input and they make a decision with the much greater amount of information they have than the citizens individually have. You know, if you took a ref, somebody pointed out, if you had a referendum on the bridge, it probably would have failed. If you had a referendum on the Crest Pavilion, it would have failed. If you had a referendum on um, the Door Community Auditorium, that might have failed back in the 80s. So a referendum doesn't necessarily mean you're coming to the best decision. Right. So, Do you, do you think that he's suggesting a referendum because he knows that it would fail? Is, is, that, is that part he, of the... Well, I mean, the, the, the anti-granary folks believe that that the sentiment is 90-10, honestly. Like, they, they, they believe it's overwhelmingly. You can see that on the comments on Facebook pages. You can see that in the meetings. The, and they, they point to a, an online poll that was on Door County Daily News in which people voted overwhelmingly for demolishing the granary. But it's an online poll. I don't think there's a limit on how many times one person can vote. Right. Um, online polls are not even remotely scientific. Mm-hmm. I would never use them honestly. And that's why we never put them on the Pulse site. Cause they're just like, it's a good way to get people to like get fired up, but it's not a good way to help the community come to a better decision. Right. That's not to knock door County daily news. It's just a, a fact. So they keep pointing to that when the reality, the, the closest thing we have to a, a viable judgment on where people and where the community stands on the referendum is the ballot box. And we had two straight elections where the pro granary faction won six different districts and the mayor one by 42 votes. So all that tells me is that it's much closer to some sort of 50-50 split. So it's a very divided community. Right. So where do we sit now? What's the plan moving forward? Now, so ultimately, the council voted to move the granary back. They'll nail down a lot of details on February 5th at the, the next council meeting. And it looks like the granary will move back across the bridge sometime in the next few months and back on its original home on the west side and have to be incorporated into the Waterfront Committee's plans. I'm going to, we're recording this on Thursday. Tonight, I'll be going down to Sturgeon Bay and hopefully catching some of the Waterfront Committee's meeting tonight and see how they respond. Do Do they do what's been common in Sturgeon Bay over the last couple of years, which is put up a wall and get really frustrated and ticked off? They'd have a right to be. Or do they kind of turn things around and, and maybe show Sturgeon Bay a way forward? We'll see. That was going to be my next question is one of the biggest factors about deciding whether or not to move back at this point was trying to let the Waterfront Committee finish its plan, finally let it get to where it needs to be so that it can incorporate the granary if, it, if that's the plan uh, in a way that 
is well facilitated by them. And now they're at a, in a position where the granary is being thrust into their plan, wherever their plan may be at this, at this moment. So maybe we can talk about, about what you take away from the meeting tonight on next week's podcast, just to kind of get that, that question figured out. Don't um, tell people we're going to talk about this again next week. They're, they're, no one's going to tune back in. <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. Are you, the, the times that we talk about Sturgeon Bay and the Granary and that, they tend to be some of our better podcasts. Yeah, I know. Um, um, as, as dramatic, we're not doing this as clickbait. I would really <laughs> as, as dramatic as, as these meetings are and as this whole controversy has been, people are interested in it and, and people are, are talking about it. And that's, I mean, that's Well, and I thing. think part of that is because one week to another, it doesn't, seem to make a lot of sense. You think you have some finality and then you don't. Right. And in fact, the ordinary high water mark, Thomas Wolfe um, announced at the meeting that he's got a group and they were going to appeal the decision on the ordinary high water mark. And he didn't um, add any details about like what that was going to be based on, but we'll find out. It seems, seems kind of set. It's, it's tough to find a way around it, but that might lead to some discovery on the settlement that was reached too. So there's, um, there could be some interesting more news coming up. Any last words on this particular part of the story before we wrap up this week? The April election probably will be now phrased on, uh, as, as a referendum on the granary. Um, the mayor races, the, the alder, the council member races. Um, and so it's, this is just not going to go away. And, uh, you know, until that, the granary is locked and and set in stone on its original home. I I wouldn't say that I'm 100 percent confident where this go, will go in any direction. Uh, one last thing that I will say about this is that on uh, DoorCountyPulse.com, we did a video last year of the granary moving from the west waterfront to its temporary location. And if you want a sneak peek at its move back, I would recommend just playing that video in reverse <laughs> and you'll get a pretty good idea of what the granary is going to look like going back to the West waterfront. Yes. Andrew is just, uh, trying to avoid me having to send him down there in the cold to, to get its next journey. Right. I think that that's going to do it for us this week, Miles. Thank you so much for chatting with me and I look forward to talking with you again next week. Thanks as always, Andrew. These stories and more will be available in this week's issue of the Peninsula Pulse available throughout Door County. For more headlines, visit DoorCountyPulse.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast for your weekly Pulse picks, interviews, and exclusive content from the Peninsula Pulse. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.